All right, we may get a few more stragglers kind of wandering in after they finish their ice cream, but since we are a kind of small and cozy group before we kind of kick off um, the session, we'll do our quick introductions and we'll at least let everybody else introduce themselves real quickly so you know we know who's here and where you're coming from. So uh, for those of you I haven't met, my name is Tim Hoagland. I'm the Director of Education Outreach Programs at the Minnesota Historical Society, and as part of that responsibility, I supervise uh, teacher education, the History Day program, curriculum development, and diversity outreach, of all things. So um, the genesis of this session was some of the discussions that kind of came out of the meeting in Richmond, where um, this was a topic of conversation. Uh, and, you know, as we kind of thought about some of the examples that we've experienced as a single institution, we thought we'd, we'd bring that out here to Salt Lake City and share um, with you all. To my right is Chris Taylor. Uh, Chris Taylor is the manager of diversity outreach at the Minnesota Historical Society. We're all Minnesota Historical Society people here. Next to him is Travis Zimmerman. Travis is our Indian Affairs liaison, and he's also the site manager of the Mille Lacs Indian Museum and Trading Post. Next to Travis is Bradley Sam Jr. Uh, Bradley is the program supervisor at the Mille Lacs Indian Museum and Trading Post. And down at the end is Kyle Parsons, who is a diversity outreach associate and uh, they all represent a, a range of experiences that we'll, we'll get into here so uh, real quickly moving from this side to the other if you can just talk about who you are and what you do. And up front here Excellent. You're with him. All right. Okay. Excellent. All right. Back row. For how long? Okay. New Mexico, excellent. All right. All right. Well, our plan is to kind of take through some some introductions and just kind of use this session as a, a little bit of a conversation with some questions and answers, and also some other shared experiences. And so. Um, as we think about kind of how we're going to get into this, we thought it would be a good idea to take a little bit of a stock of, of getting everybody to think about before we're, we're planning on where you might be going with diversity. It's like, okay, let's, let's think about where we've been. And, you know, for me, being a diversity outreach manager is a little bit of an ironic position, you know, because I, I grew up in a suburb of St. Paul, graduating class of about 550 people. And if it wasn't for George Adele, an African exchange student, and Tasha O'Neill, and maybe two other people, there were no people of color in my graduating class, even though we lived about 22 miles from the center of St. Paul. And so um, what we wanted to do to, to get started here is do a, a little bit of a survey with the audience. So we got some questions here for uh, some instant feedback. And that is, how many of you feel that your governing board staff and program reflect the diversity of the state or community that you serve? Seeing no hands. We have one. Okay. How many of you have institutional mission statements that address the issue of diversity for your staff and or program? Okay. Another small hand here. How many of you feel that your institution is making diversity a priority by dedicating the staff and resources necessary to achieve its goals? And we have a few hands, which we see as a positive trend. Okay, because I think for a lot of organizations, the, the challenge is, you know, is aspiration versus uh, implementation. And even, you know, for the Minnesota Historical Society, I've worked there almost 25 years, and I've seen at least four strategic plans. All of them have mentioned diversity in one way, shape, or form, but I don't really think that the other part of the survey, that the resources to really move the, the needle on diversity really happened to a high degree. 
Um, you know, five years ago, we had the society's programs, collection staff, and governing structure more closely reflect Minnesota's diversity. In 1999, an outreach report that had six pages about what we should be thinking about with our outreach programs did not mention reaching out to communities of color or American Indian nations once. It was just kind of a morphous reaching out. So, you know, I think um, in a state like Minnesota, it's a, it's a little bit of a challenge because you think about, you know, every state has its psychological geography, and ours is largely defined by Garrison Keillor, unfortunately. Okay? And so, you know, how many of you are at least sometime Prairie Home Companion listeners? Okay? So, because you know, in Minnesota, or at least in Lake Wobegon, all the women are, the men are good looking. All right? And the children are above average. And so you kind of get this sense of, of, of Minnesota as being this kind of Scandinavian, Germanic wonderland. Uh, up in the North Woods and, and things like that, but we also are home to vital American Indian nations, uh, the Dakota and the Ojibwe, and the historic uh, interactions of Europeans and, and Native people have always made Minnesota to some degree a diverse place. But the stereotype and the realities of the power structures, the cultural organizations and things have been largely white. But like most organizations, we are taking that look into the future. And you know, for the, the idea that demography is destiny, there are changes on the horizon, and we are trying to address those because the faces of Minnesota are starting to look like this. And the question is, how do we as an organization organize ourselves in some way, both programmatically and in our human resource equation, to address the changing faces of the state? And this session is not going to get largely into our exhibit program or our public programs and things like this. It's more talking about some strategies that we've developed that are largely geared towards seeing how we can create pathways to employment. And, you know, and the numbers that we're looking at as the state is changing are pretty staggering. And if you look at how these numbers you know, flow here, this is not just an urban phenomenon. In a state like Minnesota with agricultural processing centers regionally about that are, de that are depending on either recent immigrant labor or other kinds of things, this, this little Norwegian towns in northwestern Minnesota are seeing populations that they never anticipated. You know, as I like to tell these guys, the soccer teams are getting better, okay, <laughs> which is one plus. But the last bullet point for a statewide organization like the Minnesota is probably the most telling. This is not an isolated, pocketed phenomenon. This is a statewide phenomenon, and we need to look at how we're going to address that. Now, we recently completed a strategic planning process again, which included, this is our new uh, mission statement, using the power of history to transform lives, which is a much different statement than the longer one, by you know, like a lot of institutional mission statements. So... Uh, there were people that were a little scared of that word transform, that how can a, a state historical organization be a transformational agent of change? But when you work in education, outreach, things like that, you, you know, we're probably more willing to embrace that, that challenge than most. And within the strategic plan are strategic priorities. And this is strategic priority number two related to diversity and inclusiveness. It's not that much different than the other one, except for some points of emphasis continuously engaged. Those of us who have had exhibits that might deal with different ethnic or, or racial issues, you might have this big push. Suddenly we're mounting a major African-American exhibit. We're bringing community members to help with it. The exhibit closes. Those relationships fade. As Dan Spock, our, our exhibit director, likes to say, sometimes we can be seen as serial daters, you know, that you're kind of moving through these relationships. So the continuous engagement is sometimes a tricky part that needs to transcend things like exhibits. And so in terms of our human resource development, I don't think our strategies were historically that good. Our tendency was to place ads for employment in the Native American newspapers, the ethnic presses, where we would get then applicants who were usually underqualified for the positions that we were saying, hey, 
But we collected the subs, you know, the right quota of applicants. They're like, well, we tried, you know, and that we did our due diligence to reach out. But what we're going to talk about here is a little different than that. You know, something that was more proactive and really think about how these pathways might be different. So we're going to take two different models and strategies here. First one being hiring staff who build the capacity for change. What are you, some of your first steps? How can, you know, uh, some hires that you make institutionally create a foundation for future change? And Chris and Travis are going to take you through that. The next one talks about progressive involvement. How do you evolve relationships with young people to kind of grow them? Half the people that work for me, I met when they were 14, mostly because of History Day. So what I'm going to do now is turn this over to uh, Chris and Travis, and they'll take you through the, the first theme. Hello. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to just kind of talk to you a little bit about my path to where I'm at right now, um, particularly concerning my involvement with MHS. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> in the late 90s, I was a undergraduate student with an intense desire to study history. I was on an education track. I was going to teach. That's what you do with a history degree, right? Um, my junior year, I was introduced to a program called the Coca-Cola Minority Museum Fellowship Program. Um, it was in three locations, Minnesota, Atlanta, and Chicago. Um, and what this was was a program designed to introduce students of color to potential museum careers. Um, museums were not on my radar at all at that point. I didn't even know you could go and work in a museum. What would you do? Um, and so this program was a seminar long, uh, two semester seminar type course. We met once a week and we were introduced to all the different facets of museum work. Um, you know, curatorial education, collections, conservation, uh, marketing, ev everything. Um, and we were also kind of, um, shown or had discussions readings, that kind of stuff, of about a, a lot of the issues facing museums at that time. Uh, NAGPRA had just been kind of put into effect a few years before that. Um, you know, issues regarding diversity of staff, diversity of narratives, those types of things. Um, the program also included an internship, which provided me my first kind of real traction or, or, or practical experience in the museum field. Um, what happened was that that program really engaged me in a potential career that I had never thought about before. Uh, and I had this kind of epiphany moment. I said, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I need to work in the museum, um, which led me to the Cooperstown Graduate Program. Uh, so I spent two years there, um, which really kind of cemented my, my decision to go away from formal education and into the museum. Um, you know, provided me a great foundation for a career. Networks, information, all those different types of things that you need to get into the museum. Um, but I think most importantly, it helped me to understand how I could combine education, history, and museums into a career and not have to be forced to choose one of the three, which to me was phenomenal. Those were all three things that I wanted to do. Um, so when I graduated from CGP, I worked at the New York State Historical Association with History Day for a little while. Um, and that's my connection back to MHS. Uh, History Day is a huge program that's very tightly knit. And so when a position working in education outreach uh, appeared on my uh, radar screen, I thought, wow, I get a chance to go home. I get to work with History Day. I get to work with these things. So that's how I wound up coming to work at MHS. Um, when I started at MHS, I was doing teacher workshops. I was doing uh, History Day stuff. And my career kept evolving. We had this diversity initiative, which really was pushing us to figure out ways to diversify staff to diversify programming. Um, and so I got a little bit away from uh, 
teacher workshops and really into working with younger folks. We decided that in our area, at least, we are going to really focus on investing in the future. So I work with middle, high school, and college kids, and, and History Day is really the middle and high school piece. But what I was able to do was I was able to reincarnate the program that changed my life, which was phenomenal. So I get to run our version of the Museum Fellows Program. You see a picture of us here in D.C. Um, and so it, it's really fun for me to be able to now look across the table from this side and see people that were in a similar situation I was in, struggling to first understand that you could work in a museum, and then what do I do in a museum? And so uh, the, it, it's really rewarding for me, and we've really been able to grow. We've now got three versions of this program that you'll hear about through this um, we're also doing some other things with high school students, but the main capacity has grown. This is now where I was diversity outreach. This is now diversity outreach. So we, we've been able to expand to four of us now, um, which really increases our capacity to deliver these programs, but also to develop new programs as, we, uh, as the resources make themselves available. So that's kind of been my path. It's been a little bit more of a traditional path. Travis is kind of in the same level of the organization or situation that I'm in, but he's taking a little bit different path. Thanks, Chris. So I uh, had a history degree from St. John's University. Um, like Chris, you know, kind of wondered what I could do with it, uh, teach, write a book, that type of thing. Didn't really know. Uh, Worked for several American Indian nonprofit organizations, both in Minneapolis and on reservations throughout the year. And then uh, about six years ago, uh, seen a position open uh, to work with the Indian Advisory Committee that the Minnesota Historical Society has and to become their program coordinator. And the Indian Advisory Committee that we have has been around for uh, over 20 years, and it's a group of people. Um, representatives from all the different tribes, all the different reservations in the state of Minnesota. And if you don't know much about Minnesota, there's 11 reservations, uh, seven Ojibwe reservation and four Dakota communities. So those people, uh, those tribal councils all appoint a representative to sit on the Indian Advisory Committee. And then that group of people elect five at-large members, and then we have a couple ad hoc committee members. So it's about a 20-member group. And they advise the Historical Society on everything from um, – collections, American Indian collections, to publications pertaining to American Indians, to educational programs pertaining to American Indians, that type of thing. So I started working. It was a three-quarters time position. Started working in St. Paul at the History Center. And about a year and a half into that position, I was asked to uh, come up to work for the um, Mille Lacs Indian Museum and Trading Post, which is one of our historic sites located on a reservation in, in uh, north-central Minnesota. So I started working there, and as I, I changed my positions, I also, uh, my title kind of changed. I became the Indian Affairs Liaison, so I started working with the Minnesota Indian Affairs Council, um, started working uh, on other committees and with other groups throughout the state in Indian Affairs matters, which then uh, um, led me last year to participate in the uh, Seminar for Historic Administration, the, the Shah program that AASLH is involved with. Um, incredible opportunity. It's a great professional development uh, opportunity for me. And then throughout the course of this, too, one of the things that the Indian Advisory Committee was uh, always stressing and was kind of always pushing when I was working with them was that they wanted to really see um, uh, the historical society help build the capacity of tribes to, to tell their own stories, to do their own historic preservation and cultural preservation. And so in working with uh, Chris, with his museum fellowship program, we're able to implement the American Indian Museum Fellowship Program, which was aimed at American Indian college students. And it's a three-week summer program, basically to, uh, you know, do the same thing that the, the Coca-Cola Fellowship did for Chris and, and uh, the American Indian Museum uh, minority program uh, that Chris is involved with is to really show them the different fields involved in cultural and historic preservation and and to give them some some guidance and some direction in in how they might uh, enter the field and then uh, you know through the course of doing this uh, we've 
always been looking at how do we address our institutional change. And to give you a little bit of background about the Minnesota Historical Society, it was, it was founded by Ramsey. And um, uh, Ramsey was involved in the U.S.-Dakota War in 1862, and, and uh, which this year we've been um, doing a lot of different things. It's the 150th anniversary of the U.S.-Dakota War in Minnesota. And so one of the things that we've been doing is um, trying to reach out to Native American communities, to, to help us tell that story, to include that, that native narrative into that. Uh, it's a difficult story to tell. It ended with the uh, largest mass execution in the history of the United States. 38 uh, Dakota men were hung in Mankato the day after Christmas in 1862. And so um, we're always looking at, you know, how do we, uh, how do we address that? How do we... Um, work to tell those difficult stories and, and how do we incorporate those those voices that so many times are, are left out of the narrative. And it doesn't come fast enough for a lot of people. You know, here's a, a group when we had our um, history day at the Capitol that uh, we have um, uh, historic Fort Snelling is one of our historic sites. And there's, uh, you know, a group of people that are pretty adamant about you need to take down that fort. It's a, a sign of imperialism. It's where they kept the Dakota people over the winter in captivity, that type of thing. So, um, you know, you can't please everybody all the time. But it's still something that, uh, you know, I felt that was important enough that to, to work with the historical society. And, and things aren't going to change unless we, you know, really uh, uh, try to get more people of color into the institution to start uh, making those changes, and that's something that the um, Indian Advisory Committee was was always stressing too, because they were saying, "Okay, we're an advisory committee; we can advise you on this, but really, what needs to start happening is we need more American Indians to to work in these fields. We need more American Indians working in education outreach. We need more American Indians in our sites programs. Uh, we need more American Indians dealing with our collections. You know that type of thing." So. Um, it's been, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's coming full, you know, it, it's, it's coming around. Like Tim said, um, me and Chris are both on the inclusiveness and, and diversity committee. That was the strategic priority. And so, you know, that's, uh, we're starting to look at, uh, how do we do that? What does that mean? What does diversity mean? What does inclusiveness mean? You know, who are we including? Um, how are we including them? That type of thing. And then Chris is going to talk about, you know, how that uh, progressive involvement has uh, led us to where we are. And again, <clears throat> talking about addressing institutional change, you know, it's, it's really about how do we get people to want to come and work for us. You can't just say, hey, get a museum job and come work for us. And so one of the things that we've really tried to create is a system that will bring people uh, to enjoying history or studying history first off at a younger level and then really becoming engaged in looking at what might be their niche in the museum field. What is it that they really love to do? For me, it was education. For other people, it might be something different. But it's it's a strategy that we call progressive involvement where it's really about creating these multiple points of engagement for people along that continuum from middle school through college to engage with the History Center in ways that uh, are meaningful to them, but also will help maybe uh, inform us on things that we're doing. Maybe it'll help uh, change the organizational culture. Maybe it will give us more insight into communities. At the end of the day, we're hoping to grow our own, in a sense, to where these people will progressively become involved with MHS and eventually become staff. That's that's the ultimate goal. But I also feel like if these people are coming through this type of engagement with us and going off and working in a museum somewhere else, it benefits the field in general. I think that just uh, getting more diverse people interested in museums is really a big goal uh, or something we should all be doing. So this is kind of just a slide that demonstrates our progressive involvement. So History Day is a national program. We, we deal with about 30,000 students in Minnesota. So it gives us access to a large pool of middle and high school students. Um, 
we have other teen programs. We've got teen internships, uh, SHIP, which is a, a, a immersion program that Kyle will talk about in a little bit, um, our teen advisory council, junior interpreters, community outreach. We're putting teens in play in a lot of different areas of the museum and doing a lot of different things. And we're hoping that really by focusing on college prep and college readiness in all of these programs, that's kind of a commonality between all those programs, we can see these students move into college because then we've got our college programs, the fellows programs, a college internship program, uh, history day mentoring program um, where we, we put undergrads in history day schools to help projects and whatnot. We can engage them again through other programs. So we're taking them as high school students and hopefully they get a good experience with us, but also they love history. So then they go into college majors and we can say, hey, we've got other programs for you to come and engage with us again. But now it's not reading, writing, presenting. It's more about let's look at the museum field. What are the possibilities for you? What do you like to do and how can we engage you in that? So these, like I said, internships, the fellows program always have some type of you know, speakers talking about the various facets of museum work, um, travel. You saw the picture of us in D.C. We go out there for a week with one of the programs and meet with professionals. Um, so really, it's getting them thinking about careers and wanting to work with us or other museums. And then the last component is what we're kind of calling coaching and connecting, which it might be uh, extending internships or it might be contract work with us where we'll contract for X amount of hours and they'll do work with us. Um, we advise them on grad schools. You know, what are you looking for? What would be a good fit for you? You know, do you need to go to a grad school? What do you want to do? And ultimately, hopefully, employment. Um, you know, it's interesting. I just hired a position last week, um, and it's our lowest level professional position. I got 160 applications. And as I'm going through the best candidate wasn't the Ph.D. that applied or the master's that applied. It was a woman that had gone through this with us. She had done two of our fellows programs. She'd done the internship program. She'd mentored for History Day for us. And I can say, boy, that practical experience and your knowledge of our programs makes you the best fit. So, um, you know, we're starting to see this come to fruition a little bit. Um, and, and, you know, as we move into the, yes, we're a summer history immersion program, and we're going to talk about that program in a little bit here. Um, so that progressive involvement is kind of a model we're still tightening up, so to speak, and, and Brad and Kyle are kind of our first um, evolution of the payoff, so to speak, and we'll kind of let them talk about their experience of how they've come around to the museum field. Thanks, boss. I'm, I'm the payoff. Um, hi, my name's Kyle Parsons. Like he said, I'm happy to get to talk to you guys today. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about how I uh, became engaged as a young person and how that, that stuck with me and ultimately brought me to my career in the museum field. Um, when I was in eighth grade, I did National History Day for the first time. Um, it was, I look back and I, I, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but I can really pinpoint that as a moment where history became something that was, that was a part of my life. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't just schoolwork. It was something I enjoyed learning about. Um, one of the reasons I like to I always tell students about this, it was the first time I got to look into history and pick out something that I felt represented me. I, uh, I studied the Supreme Court case of Loving versus Virginia. It's about interracial marriage in uh, the 1960s. And uh, as a product of an interracial marriage, when I was reading that, when I was studying that, it didn't feel like just schoolwork, you know. It, it felt like history was really coming alive, and it's something I've carried with me a long, long way. Um, here is an example of my senior group performance out in D.C. with Tim. Um, so you can see a, a relationship with MHS was started. Um, that's when I was 16, but it, it started all the way back when I was 14. And um, as I went forward in high school and really had, I carried on that same passion. Yeah, I had a lot more hair, as some of you are noticing. Um, as I, as I carried kind of that passion for history through high school, I went off to college really thinking I was going to major in history. But um, as these guys like to give me a hard time for now, I said, what can you do with the history degree besides teach? Um, but I, uh, so I went to school for communications. While I was there, I had a radio show. And 
through my best efforts to shake Tim, I was unable, and um, he tuned in and he listened and uh, he would, you know, he, he kept in touch with me and that personal interest in how school, how you doing, what are you thinking about for your future, that kind of um, investment in me, that kind of um, relationship building meant something because my senior year in college, I was able to come home over winter break and work with students on History Day. It was very second nature to me because I had been through the program, you know, I had, I had done it extensively. But it was an opportunity for me as a broke college kid to make a little bit of money but feel like I was also being able to give something back. And it was a really, um, it was a really good model, I think. From that experience, I actually started to ask the question of what else is going on in MHS and is there anything that, you know, I might be interested in? And at that time, Chris was really, like he said, he was the diversity outreach function. Um, they were able to hire their first position the fall after I had just graduated and um, that was really my first opportunity to get into to diversity outreach. So now, um, as I kind of hit the ground running, I have um, kind of the macro opportunity to engage students. And I go out through History Day, meet with kids in schools, try to get them excited about history, and I tell them, you know, I think the number one tool I kind of have in my belt is uh, authenticity. Saying, you know, I am a person of color who came through this school system and did this project and here's what it meant for me here's why i liked it and if it's not history day that you love what else might you be interested in if it's not american history you want to study what might you be interested in and i think i have the credibility to do that in their eyes because um i i can say i someone took an interest in me the same way i want to take an interest in you um this right here is the summer history immersion program some of my favorite kids uh this uh this is a kind of more um more highly concentrated engagement and even potentially transformational program we have for students that runs for two and a half weeks for uh, two different cohorts during the summer. The goal of the program is to take inner city kids. Uh, traditionally, we've had first generation college students or potential first generation college students, I should say. And um, we take them to the University of Minnesota and Anderson Archive and we have them do a research project. They, they really get run through the ringer. They do some uh, pretty rigorous work, but I think it's, it's something that even when they're going through it, they can see the benefit of, by doing research, I'm increasing my, uh, my literacy, my ability to present, my ability to um, inquire, all of those things. And so while they're doing these, pro these projects, these research-based projects, they're also getting the college immersion piece where they meet with financial aid or study abroad or the Black Student Union, um, other cultural groups like La Raza. These are the things we do to try to build in not only can there be a path for you in history, but there's an academic world outside of high school that you can be a, a member of if you want to be. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of my niche. Uh, that's my pathway into the museum, but I'm going to introduce you to Bradley Sam, who had a, a different path. Anin, everybody. Um, Bradley, Indigenous Cause, Mississauga Eigening, and Dunjaba. So I said, uh, hello, my name is Bradley. I am from Mille Lacs. I am also a Mille Lacs band member. I'm enrolled up there, okay? Um, unlike Kyle, he came in through History Day. Um, I actually came in through the Summer Youth Internship Program back when I was 17. Um, that's this young man right up there. <laughs> um, so during my internship, essentially I was doing everything like the site guys were doing, okay? So we were giving tours of the Four Seasons Room. We were interacting with the public through the various programs that were offered. Um, I got a chance to meet the elders uh, that were working there at the time, which was fantastic. They're just full of information. Um, and it also sparked my interest in history. Uh, before my internship, I really didn't know the history of my people. Um, I did go to Nyashing, which is the tribal school up there, for three years. Um, during that time, uh, it was a brand new school too, by the way, I should mention. But during that time, the history of our people really wasn't taught. So when I started at the museum, it gave me that chance to actually learn that, okay? Um, so I worked there for a couple years in uh, a couple different capacities. I uh, left to try the college thing. Didn't work out too well. I uh, ended up coming back to Mille Lacs. Uh, when I got back, I wanted to get a job at the museum. Now, for a couple reasons. One of them was um, I loved educating the public about um, our people. You know, it makes me feel good when they can leave and say, hey, I didn't know this about the Ojibwe, or I didn't know that the Native Americans did this. You know, it just gives you a really good feeling. Um, another thing that brought me back was my personal connections to the museum. There's actually a couple photos of my great and my great-great-grandfather on my mom's side back in the exhibit hall. Um, that's on my mom's side. Oh, I just mentioned that. Um, also, there's a mannequin in the Four Seasons room 
who's modeled after my great-grandfather on my dad's side. And I actually got to meet him. He lived to be 98 years old. I actually did get a fifth-generation picture with him as well. So it's actually neat when I go in there and give a tour now to, you know, actually see that every time I go in there. So um, uh, I did apply to the museum. I ended up getting hired back as a maintenance worker. It was the only thing open at the time. Um, I was hoping eventually I would get back into the interpreter spot, which I did eventually. It led to being a site tech and then ultimately the program supervisor. Um, so now I just schedule, like, the workshops for the year, um, just oversee the interpreters, just various things like that. Um, so in my capacity, it also gives me a chance to – put some new programs together so one of them is like our monday history club essentially we take some kids from neoshing um you know we do crafts with them we teach them about native americans but we also um try to help them put projects together and get them to compete in history day as well um, another program we have is the summer youth internship program we've been doing that for the last two years um Oh, and I forgot to mention the the Monday History Club program. We've had nine kids. This will be our third year doing it. Nine kids that keep coming back. Okay, so um, both those pr programs have been all great, and it gives us a chance to engage kids in our community. So, all right, miigwech. So, you know, as you've seen a little bit of the snapshots of how, you know, we tried to work through these things in fairly practical ways. I mean, like everything else, there is always the funding question. The Minnesota Historical Society is fortunate that some of this initiative is funded by um, what's called the Legacy Amendment, which was passed uh, about four years ago, which dedicated a certain percentage of the sales tax to outdoors and culture and the arts. So the institution gets funding that we're able to um, use to supplement our programs but not supplant existing resources. But this is also a chance for us that we've developed pilot projects that then have to be evaluated in a way that will make them more fundable. And I think of all the things that our development office is working on as they're struggling to find dollars for exhibits. They're finding more open doors when you're talking about uh, higher ed access and talking about um, trying to address underserved communities to increase their engagement with core cultural organizations like the Historical Society or to create pathways to higher education. And this work is, is so important in engaging with our new mission statement about transforming lives through the power of history. When you look at the statistics of, of uh, Kyle and some of the diversity outreach staff that American Indian students in Minneapolis, one of the largest urban Indian populations, the graduation rate for four-year graduation rates for ninth graders is 14%. The graduation rate for, for American Indian students in the Minneapolis public schools is 14%. So even if you, when you hear numbers like eight or nine kids on, come to that Monday club in a rural Indian reservation, the sticking with that small group of kids over time, you know, and maybe even four or five or six of them graduate from high school. These are huge, profound uh, uh, implications, not only for those students, but potentially for that museum. Or Kyle working with emerging immigrant communities, the Somali communities, which is growing, in, and just trying to find what are those connections. But in the end, you know, as we think about this in our our strategic plan and our relationship, our organization is a lot about what does it mean to be a Minnesotan? You know, they come in, you know, uh, immigrant, recent immigrant communities might come in and feel like somehow they exist outside the, the culture. But the story of any state, like our state, is one of change over time, of people coming in and forging that identity about what does it mean to be a Minnesotan. And so as much as we can reflect those communities in our programs, we also need to figure out ways that they can come in and see people of in, their, in their communities employed by this organization who are able to work and create those layers of trust that will then hopefully build collections that then reinforce program and exhibit programs. So trying to figure out, like, the progressive involvement, how do you create these virtuous circles is, I think, uh, a very... Uh, important challenge and one that we're em embracing in in ways that align with our strategic plan and you know have been able to be supported by resources but not every organization is the same and so I think what we wanted to do is make sure we saved enough time in this session
to do a couple things. There's opportunities for you know you to ask questions of the of the panel here if you want to hear a little bit more about what they're doing. But it's also an opportunity for people here to maybe share some of the you know the challenges and opportunities that you might be facing in your own organizations, and whether they're fairly low cost, low volume type initiatives or you know, more macro initiatives like the relationships that evolve out of History Day, how do you try and get that programmatic mix to work together to, to meet some of these institutional goals? So with that, I think we'll just, you know, open it up for uh, either questions or, or things that you might want to share. So and maybe we'll start even here. How did you come about the, you know, the opportunity that seems to have presented itself? For some of the people who came in late, you want to quickly summarize kind of the opportunity that's presented? You need to summarize that for the podcast. Oh, well, yeah, we're being podcasted, I guess, here too. So um, if you want to, we don't have a handheld microphone. So. Yeah, at the Imperial Valley Desert Museum, uh, which is in the middle of the Imperial Valley Desert, we have received mitigation money to develop a Native American internship program specifically to try and bring kind of a museum experience to uh, Native Americans. Okay. And that's going to be initiated coming up yeah. soon. Okay. Any other? If I might address that real quick. One of the things, this is going to be ridiculous. One of the things that, or messages that we put out when we started, because we've, you know, the historical society has had rocky relationships with the diverse communities in Minnesota, and our reputation is not good. But one of the things that I would tell people is, you know, if you don't want to come and represent your story, or if you don't want to come and tell your story, it's going to continue to be told by the people that have been telling it for 150 years. And so we need people to come and bring a different perspective or a different interpretation or wanting to to, to, to tell those stories in a different way. And we were able to get people to come around. You know, they, particularly our Indian Advisory Committee, <clears throat> you know, when we said, hey, we're trying to do this a different way, we don't want necessarily to tell the same stories or, you know, we want people to come into our museum that are going to bring a different perspective, tell different stories. And we need people to kind of bite on that. And that's that's kind of how we, we, we started with that message is if you don't want to tell it, who's going to do it? And if you're not happy with who's doing it now, that's probably who's going to continue to do it. I'd like to add something, too. One of the things that I think is uh, most important with the work we do with our American Indian communities is that relationship building. And sometimes for institutions, especially large institutions that move at 100 miles per hour, people don't like being dragged down in, in you know, building those relationships because it takes time. I mean, you know, working with uh, the Dakota community and, um, you know, with the 150th anniversary of the U.S.-Dakota War, uh, my uh, direct supervisor, Andrea Kyer, here is, but she's a deputy director for the Minnesota Historic Society of External Relations. We actually went out to the Dakota communities. We Not only the Dakota communities within Minnesota, but also the Dakota communities that were exiled because the Dakota were actually kicked out of the state of Minnesota after the war. And so we actually took a trip out to Flandreau, South Dakota, out to um, Crow Creek, South Dakota, um, uh, Nebraska, 
Uh, what's that? Oh, Santee, the Santee communities out in Nebraska. So we went out and, you know, purposely met with them and then invited groups of Dakota people throughout this year. We had three or four different Dakota roundtables uh, that we kept inviting people back to, to really build that relationship. So it is a matter of going, you know, keep going back and keep going back and building those relationships until they feel like you can trust, they can trust, uh, you know, museums and, and larger institutions because, um, you know, let's be honest, <laughs> you know, institutions haven't always served the best interest of American Indians or, you know, different uh, communities of color. Any other questions or thoughts right here? You could even come on up. My voice is soft, and I'm constipated, and I'm afraid that I would not be able to be heard if I sat back in the corner. Oh, you just want to be a podcast star. <laughs> I've already been one today. <laughs> um, I am a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the School of Information and Library Science, and I'm going to be serving on a committee there that's concerned with issues of diversity. So I would like to get your information to take back to the school, and I would like to give you mine so that you can contact me because one of the things we are trying to do is increase diversity in the student population and one of the things that we want to be able to do is not just bring students in and let them get a degree but be able to give them some positive ideas about places that they can look where they might be able to find employment and I think Charleston would be a place that some of our students would thrive at so yes, let's yeah, talk I'd afterwards be happy to information thank you thank you I think, and Kyle, go ahead and jump in. Um, so to your to your point, and I think it's a, it's a very fair question of how do we get people of color involved on the staffing side, especially. Certainly. Um, we, um, we have a colleague who, who actually just started with us at MHS who's spent the past 20-some years with Colonial Williamsburg, and he's talked much about the same thing. And I think there's um, a couple strategies. One of them is um, building partnerships with uh, organizations and um, offering something more than just come be an interpreter, come, come stand here and talk about slavery, you know, which, which certainly I'm, I'm not saying that's all you're doing, but... Um, Building a, a more sustained partnership, which is a lot of what we've been talking about, helps to build that trust. And a lot of times when there's communities that don't feel a trust or don't feel an inclusion, I think um, it starts with partnership building. And that can be on the staff side, but that can also be on an advisory side like uh, the IAC that we have. Uh, just another avenue I wanted to uh, to just throw out there to you, though, is we recently, last year, um, we, we piloted a program called the Junior Interpreters or the Gallery Assistants. Which, which is a high school internship program, and it is targeted towards students from underrepresented communities. And our goal is to take these kids, put them onto the museum field, and, or into the museum field, and give them their first experience, not only with a job, but explaining history, learning history, disseminating information to groups. And we've found that's a really successful way. A lot of times, uh, our junior interpreters take their jobs even more seriously 
then um, I, I, I don't know if that's fair to say, but I, they, they approached it with a level of professionalism that you might not expect from 16- and 17-year-olds. But No, this was during the school year. So, so did they come out to your site after school or on Saturdays? It was an after-school and weekend program where they would train on Thursdays after school for a couple of hours, and um, on the weekends they would have a gallery shift. They would punch in, much like, um, much like our actual uh, docents or much like our actual... Um, interpreters and they would they would then uh, spend three to four hours on the floor with different carts that they had been kind of trained specially on and we're looking to expand that program now because it was it was such a success pulling these diverse students from different parts of the cities telling these different stories um, so that's just one model you know um, kind of they, they were paid they were paid um, and again comparative to an interpreter, it was much cheaper to have the junior interpreters, but for the students, it was their first employment opportunity. Well, there you go. Um, but I think that those are just some examples of opportunities you could you could look into. And uh, just a follow-up question there. Is this part of a class that they had on campus also? So is it something that they could earn credit with through their history class or something of that sort, or an extracurricular activity? For the high school students? Yeah. No, this was not a part of a course or anything. It was, it was really treated like... Um, kind of an intro-level job, like an entry-level job for them, but it was scaled down because they're high school okay, students, so about an, about an eight-hour-a-week commitment for these students. Thank you. Hey, just real quick. And if you have a college near you that maybe has an education program or like a history department or Afro-studies department or something like that, it might be a nice experiential learning type thing for them that you might be able to partner with. Okay, and that didn't work, huh? All four colleges in Charleston, yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Bert? But I won't stop trying. No. no. Okay. No. We, uh, we have a historical society. We're in the process of building relationships with federally recognized tribes in Ohio that will lead to Oklahoma. We're underway doing that. But the challenge that we often face are the tribal members or Native Americans in Ohio Okay, so the question is about, you know, tribes that have been removed from Ohio into into Oklahoma and kind of tribal unenrolled tribal members still in Ohio and trying to work through the dynamics of, of enrollment issues and, and engagement with the institution. I think there are, you know, some layers of that, especially with Dakota removal and some other kinds of things, but I don't think any tribes in Minnesota were terminated in the same way. But there are a lot of enrollment issues in, in a few different things. So, Travis, you're probably the... Well, there is um, the Mendota, uh, uh, um, Dakota community, is right outside of Minneapolis, is fighting for federal recognition. They've never been federally recognized. So, um, you know, that's, for example, for our Indian Advisor Committee, they don't have a seat, you know, uh, on our Indian Advisor Committee because they're not recognized. But one of the ways to kind of... Um, that you can work around that is is through our advisory committee because they can um, select at-large members and those at-large members are selected by the you know uh, representatives of federally recognized tribes you know so if they were to you know appoint a Mendota member or something like that um, but in Minnesota it's a little different because actually the Dakota communities um, are just that they're Dakota communities they're not federally recognized reservations. And so it is a very complex history. Um, you know, and a starting point is to, I think, work with who's ever eager to, you know, like she's, uh, like this lady in the front is saying she's having a hard time even getting anybody in the door. So if you have people that are willing to talk to you, don't let whether they're federally recognized stop you from, from working with them is, would be my suggestion. Uh, to you, because as long as they're willing and and able to you know to work with you and to to piece together that history and to make those connections for you, you know, because tribal enrollment issues are a sticky thing. You know, American Indians are the only <laughs> the only race of people that have to prove their their blood quantum, you know, type of thing. So I wouldn't let that be a sticking point. But I know it can be a contentious point, especially from those people that do represent recognized tribes. Allie.
Okay, so the question is really about what were some of the strategies for identifying these high potential students that were going to flow into these more intensive um, programs one way or another? Who wants to try it first? Kyle? Um, I think uh, one of the slides on here could have been recruitment all by itself because I, uh, I can, what you said really resonates with us, just the idea of how do we get people in the door. I think you heard something from, from Bradley, from Chris, from myself, um, probably Travis too, like when we said, you know, oh, I didn't know there was a spot for me in the museum field or I didn't know there was, you know, I didn't know I could do something with history. We all kind of had that, that moment and it takes somebody, um, it takes somebody who has a passion for working with diverse people or bringing people in. Um, I can tell you one of our, the way we recruit for the Summer History Immersion Program is I engaged students through History Day. And I'm looking for high potential students, not necessarily high achieving students, but um, students who show that spark that says, you know, they, they're, willing to, they're willing to give it a go or they could really benefit from this type of program. And recruitment can be a real challenge, you know. Um, the the inherent challenges with dealing with students from underrepresented uh, communities are, are, are pretty well documented. But going out to where they are, I think one of the most important things um, is continuing to show up. I think the idea of being a consistent present and, you know, something Tim talks about a lot is kind of that episodic engagement where we, we do our Latino exhibit and that's our service to the Latino community. That's not building a relationship. That's not building a partnership. That's a showcase, and then, and then you move on. So I think recruitment in areas where you are being a consistent present. Uh, Tim, or excuse me, Chris mentioned colleges. Uh, the way we recruit for our fellows programs is we, we try to build relationships with organizations like historically black fraternities. We go to their events and try to understand their philanthropic goals. We try to understand... Um, what they want to be in the community. And, you know, one of our biggest sales pitch to college students is if you are looking to be a meaningful advocate for your cultural group or your community, here is an outlet. You know, we have some level of resource and you bring some level of resource. Can we build a partnership instead of saying, hey, do you want to be an intern? Or, hey, we have jobs. You know, we don't tell them that. We say we'd really like to build partnerships with you. And I think that's um, a strong part of that recruitment piece is not saying I'm going to go into the high schools of which I've never been into and I've drop off flyers for the teachers. I'm going to call on the teachers that I've been going to their classrooms to help or that we have relationships with through past projects and say we're looking for students who um, you think could, could be impacted by what we're trying to do. And I think at the heart of that, you really have to care about your mission. I know that's one thing that we, uh, in diversity outreach, we really care about the underrepresented community. We really care about the non-traditional narrative. We don't spend a dollar without going back to our mission. There you go. Uh, recruiting for us for um, our history club, essentially um, Travis went down to the local school, the tribal school, and they do a ceremony usually the first Monday of the week. So you get a chance to meet with all the teachers and all the students, and essentially we just made the announcement. Um, Whatever kids were interested, we kind of held like a little supper for them, invited the parents to come along, explained it, what, what we were going to be doing with the kids, um, hopefully what they would get out of it. So then those kids would come back, and then from there it's pretty much word of mouth. Um, we are kind of a smaller community up there, so word of mouth can is probably our best way of, of getting uh, you know what we're trying to do up there. For our uh, internship program, I got connections for the local schools. Um, again, we're a small community. The Isle School is probably 20 miles away. Onamia is 12 miles away. Neoshing is two city blocks away. So it's easy for us to call on, uh, for like Isle and Onamia, the, the teachers who are in charge of like the uh, American Indian uh, students program. I'm not sure what it's called right now off the top of my head, but um, that's who we'd get a hold of and then tell them, hey, there's an internship starting this day. If you want information, I'll send it to them through email. And then everyone I talked to said they'd have four or five people in mind. So then they would just present that to the students. And then uh, we kind of do it just like a job, give them an application. They bring it in. And then, uh, yeah, so that's kind of how we did our recruiting for History Club and the internships. And just, you know, Brad mentioned this briefly, too, is that, it came up. If we're going to bring students from these 
populations into a relationship with MHS. We do not want them to suffer negative financial consequences. If a SHIP student is not going to have to take a job, then we have stipends usually involved in any of our teen programs so that their parents might say, well, why are you going to go do that for free when you could be doing this? And so I think that anticipating the economic needs of the students that you're engaging in also brings a degree of, of uh, respect from the community saying you're not just doing this to make you look good like you suddenly have brown people in your building, you know, that you're making that investment uh, in their pre-professional or pre-educational development, which I think is, you know, although it creates certain funding challenges and unpaid internships are still a strategy that, you know, that exists, but I think that's, that's, a, that's a priority and it's something that, um, that foundations have been willing to support. out that a, a key component of diversity that exists everywhere in the country is people with disabilities, um, although oftentimes we're not necessarily included when people are talking about diversity. So I hope that your museums are including disabled people when you're looking for hiring. There are connections in every city and state to the disability community. And, um, and, and I wanted to make a comment about couple things I heard. One was you mentioned interpreters, and I think you have one, you've been using one uh, definition or one context of interpreters. There's another context, and that is museums want to welcome everybody in their community to their museum to participate. Interpreters for the deaf, sign language interpreters, could be considered as part of the workforce, and maybe they have you have a job opening for a particular job, but if you specify interpreters for people, uh, hard of hearing or deaf people, uh, that experience would be also preferred. So that, in other words, you bring somebody into a job that you have a built-in interpreter because a lot of times museums don't have an interpreter on staff, and so it's a way to sort of almost job share the position, but to, if deaf people come, to the museum and have questions or need a guided tour or something like that, you have somebody built in who can do that. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to ask of the panel or anybody is um, how are you, are you doing outreach to the disability community or do you need help to do outreach to the disability community? I think, in our, you know, I think for the Minnesota Historical Society, I think there's a lot of room for us to do that. I mean, we are... I can't think right now, it's not my area of the institution, but I don't think any of our current interpretive staff is um, also playing a dual role of sign language interpretations, although we have the, the list of, of sign language interpreters that are going to be embedded in our programs routinely. We have disabled interpreters on the staff and, and you know, some representative. But we also know, for example, that the Minnesota School for the Deaf does not participate in History Day. They see the information or things like that. So we we have had, um, you know, those moments where even in K twelve outreach, there are opportunities to to engage those communities um, as well. If there's any other. Go up and view the house, but 
the wheelchairs can go through the first floor basement. So after they watch the video, a guide will take them through the first floor basements so they can actually get an authentic look at the house. And as well, we have the tour actually written out as well for those hard of hearing. So there are some rather um, easy ways for museums to go about doing more to include um, people with limited mobility, visual impairment as well. And Cindy? And I'll uh, hand this over to Chris to help close this up. But I think the other thing that we're seeing in a, through your questions and everything, I mean, this kind of work is high-touch work, you know, that consistency of effort that someone is really charged with thinking about those relationships over time to find those catalytic moments. I think in all our education programs, you know, the, the research that I think has been most helpful to us was done by the Gates Foundation when they looked at all their education programs to figure out, of all the billions of dollars they invested in them, which ones paid off and what were their common features, they came up with three things, rigor relevance and the power of personal relationships. So as much as technology may solve some of our problems and other kinds of things, in this area we find that the, the human interrelationship is, one of the, is going to be the key element and also creating, as Kyle's SHIP programs show, you know, those high expectations relevant to the communities that can lead them into you know, some of these pathways that will hopefully lead to other, other points of engagement with the institution. Chris? And just to address your, your question about these programs particularly, <clears throat> all of these programs, save History Day, are all new programs. They're all within their first three years, um, and that's, you know, the most mature. Some are just a year old. Um, and so we made a conscious effort to really lean on the connections and partnerships and students that we had more access to. So we are certainly looking to be more inclusive as we, you know, now the foundations are set and we can do more focus on recruiting and things of that nature. You know, the Summer History Immersion Program, we ran <clears throat> one cohort just focused on a collection of GLBTA uh, archives last year at the U that was focused on that. We tried to recruit, you know, a as best we could with HR guidelines and everything to reach out to that community. <clears throat> and so I think, you know, as we continue to progress, our, the way we're defining diversity or the way we're recruiting is going to become more broad in scope. And I think we're at the end of time, too, but I think the um, um, panel will be happy to hang around, and it's really, um, you know, an opportunity for, I, I guess, you to join me. I mean, I've been at this for a long time, and it's it's been great to see, at least for me, the personal intersections that I've had with each of the, the panelists to um, to try and not only make the connections with them to create, you know, the opportunities that they are then taking and doing some of the most amazing work that I think happens within our, our organization. So even though it can be kind of an uphill struggle to get the train on the tracks, once it's rolling and once you see the success, success breeds success. And uh, these gentlemen are are really amazing at what they do, and thank you for taking some of your time to uh, to listen to, to their stories and some of our strategies, and if you have any other follow-up that you want to do, hang around for a little bit, and otherwise uh, enjoy the rest of your evening. So thank you.